You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the September 2021 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with Dr. Rohit Agarwal, who's the first author of a paper entitled Improving Pneumococcal Vaccination Rates in Rheumatology Patients by Using Best Practice Alerts in the Electronic Health Record. This is certainly a topical issue now. So what made your group decide to focus on pneumococcal vaccination per se? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So it started several years ago with the simple observation that some of our patients who were getting hospitalized with severe invasive pneumococcal pneumonia, uh, and we looked back and these patients had not even received basic vaccination of pneumovax at that point. And we wondered, you know, these are high-risk patients, So why are they not receiving the vaccination? Is the recommendation flawed or what was the issue? And more we dived into it, it turns out the CDC had a correct and very clear recommendation of immunizing anybody with an age above 65. And if you're between age of 18 to 64 and you have immune suppressed condition or you're on immune suppressive medication or other high risk conditions, you should be immunized. Uh, And that will significantly decrease the rate of invasive pneumococcal disease or infections. And we then looked into what's going on in our clinic. What we have a big rheumatology clinic, and you know, we said, okay, what's our vaccination rate? And it turned out it was 28% of our highly immune suppressed patients had have had vaccine in the age group of 18 to 64. If we dived into deeper, we talked to the physician and says, oh, that's not my responsibility. Rheumatologist says that's a primary care doctor's responsibility. Primary care doctor said, wait a minute, these patients are seeing you more often than they are seeing me. So it's your responsibility because you are immunosuppressing these patients. And that means you are basically, you're, you're responsible to cover them with whatever means it's possible. And there were other barriers we identified. One is lack of time, lack of understanding, lack of you know interest, and all those things. Um, so that's how the project started. So we wanted to design a project which will not be increased physician burden for specialists specifically, because specialists are focused on their disease and their disease activity. Yet it will achieve the purpose of improving patients' vaccination rate, preventing these serious infections. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Agawal. And I will now move along to the next paper to highlight this month, which is entitled Improved Incidence of Cardiovascular Disease in Patients with incident rheumatoid arthritis in the 2000s, a population-based cohort study, and is by Mayazadeva and colleagues, and is accompanied by an editorial entitled, Is the Gap in Incidence of Cardiovascular Events in Rheumatoid Arthritis Really Closing? And it's by Dr. Joan Bathon, from Columbia University Irving Medical Center, New York, USA. The aim 
of the paper was to assess the incidence of cardiovascular disease and death following an incident cardiovascular disease event in patients with rheumatoid arthritis as compared to the general population. Secondary aim was to compare the trends in cardiovascular disease in RA patients over time. Investigators studied 905 patients with RA and 904 non-RA controls over a 30-year period. This period was divided into three decades. They found that the cumulative incidence of any cardiovascular disease event was 40% lower in RA patients in the 2000s compared to those from the 1980s. In the 1980s and 90s, there was a greater than 50% excess risk of any cardiovascular disease event in patients with RA as compared to RA, non-RA subjects. Interestingly, there was no difference between the two groups in the 2000s. After reading this article, you have a better understanding of the trends in total and specific cardiovascular disease events over the last three decades. In the accompanying editorial by Dr. Basson, she compares and contrasts the finding of this study to previous studies and offers her perspective on cardiovascular events in patients with RA. Now move along to the next paper. Although early diagnosis has been shown to improve outcomes in patients with inflammatory arthritis, the diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis or PSA is often delayed months to years after first onset of symptoms. In this paper entitled Diagnostic Delay in Psoriatic Arthritis, a Population-Based Study, by Karmacharya and colleagues, they examined the demographic and clinical characteristics associated with a delay in diagnosis of PSA. They examined 164 incident PSA patients over a 17-year period and found that the median time from first joint symptom to physician diagnosis was 2.5 years. There was no significant trend in delay in diagnosis from symptom onset over the 17-year period. They found that patients with a younger age of onset, a higher BMI, with, and or the presence of enthesitis before diagnosis were more likely to have an increase in the delay to diagnosis of greater than two years. Please read this paper to see how the results of this study compare to the results of other studies. Corticosteroids are the standard treatment for giant cell arteritis, or GCA. However, there is a significant relapse rate, which has been estimated to be 47%. Recently, tozolizumab has been approved in many countries 
for use as either a steroid sparing agent or patients who are refractory to steroid therapy. The next paper to review entitled Real World Risk of Relapse of Giant Cell Arteritis Treated with Tazolizumab, a retrospective analysis of 43 patients by Clement and colleagues, reports the outcome of 43 patients, of which 37 had GCA and six primary aortitis from an open-label multi-center retrospective observational study from France. This paper is accompanied by an editorial by Dr. Peter Villager from the University of Bern, Bern, Switzerland, which is entitled Giant Cell Arteritis Real World Experience. The investigators found that after 12 months, 20 Three, uh, 43 patients were still on tozolizumab, while nine patients were still on tozolizumab after 18 months. Overall, 26 of 43 patients, or 60%, experienced at least one relapse, and there was a total of 47 relapses. The relapses were almost evenly split between patients still receiving tazolizumab, and in those who had tazolizumab discontinued. Importantly, three patients died of infection while on tazolizumab. Please read this paper for further details on the patient cohort and side effects seen in this study, and for a discussion of the implications of this paper and the author's recommendation for the use of tazolizumab with steroid-dependent or resistant GCA. The accompanying editorial by Dr. Villager gives his perspective of the findings of the study and its implications for clinical care. Regular participation in physical activity is the recommended first-line treatment for patients with knee osteoarthritis. The intensity of physical activity and sedentary behavior have been independently linked to long-term outcome. In a study entitled Joint Association of Moderate to Vigorous Intensive Physical Activity and Sedentary Behavior with Incident Functional Limitation, data from the Osteoarthritis Initiative by Master and colleagues hypothesized that regardless of time spent in sedentary behavior, patients with knee osteoarthritis who are classified as being inactive will have a higher risk of functional limitation compared to those who are active. The investigators classified 1,093 individual, individuals from the osteoarthritis initiative who were free of functional limitation at study entry into four categories, depending on their activity and sedentary behavior. Functional limitation was then measured after four years. The authors found that patients who were active, but considered to have high sedentary 
behavior had a similar risk of functional limitations that than though to those who were categorized as active with low sedentary behavior both of the active groups had a lower risk than those classified as inactive as developing functional limitation regardless of whether they were high or low sedentary behaviors. Please read this article for further details and to better guide your activity recommendations for your patients with knee OA to try to minimize progression over time. This month, there are two images in rheumatology to highlight. The first image is entitled Spinal Stenosis Caused by Calcinosis in a patient with systemic sclerosis. The title certainly is a mouthful. This image shows dystrophic calcification of the soft tissue of the L5 S1 facet joint of a woman with systemic sclerosis, which then led to spinal stenosis. Second image is entitled Post-Traumatic Chylus Knee Effusion, and it describes a 64-year-old woman who, to the surprise of the treating physician, developed a chylus knee effusion after trauma. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I encourage you to read not only the highlighted articles, but all the articles in this September 2021 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in our print edition or our online edition which is available at www.jrubin.org. Please watch my interviews of selected articles on COVID-19 and my interview with, interviews with one of the highlighted articles from the month. These are available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. Please listen next month to the October edition of Editor's Highlights. Please stay healthy and hopefully we are all vaccinated.